Well, welcome back to the Bible Reading Challenge podcast. My name is Aaron Ventura, and this is episode four of our Reader's Guide to the Book of Revelation. Revelation 4 is just 11 verses long, and here John is invited to enter the throne room of heaven. So uh, let's summarize this chapter, and then we'll get into some of the details and questions you might have. In Ephesians 2.6, it says that God has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, here in Revelation 4, we get a glimpse of what it actually looks like to sit and reign with Christ. So this is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, where one like the Son of Man, he comes to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. It's connected to that uh, chapter. There are lots of uh, hints and references, allusions, connections to that chapter. So I suggest uh, you read it and then uh, read Revelation 4 and 5 right after that. Uh, So the saints are united to Christ and our union with him, in union with him, we reign over all the world. That's what Revelation 4 and 5 are going to describe. Chapter 4 gives us a picture of the heavenly throne room of which the earthly temple and tabernacle were models. Now, if you remember the description of those buildings, you will remember some of the furniture and objects within them. And here and in the following chapters, we are going to see a lot of these same objects, but with one exception. Uh, Here in chapter four, we have a throne, which in the tabernacle, that was above the ark and the cherubim. That's where God sits. Uh, We also have seven lamps before the throne. Uh, In the tabernacle, there was just one lampstand, and in the temple, there were 10. And remember, the first three chapters were letters to the seven churches, and we were told in Revelation 1.20 that the lampstands are seven churches. However, here we are told that these lamps of fire are the seven spirits of God. So uh, symbols do not always mean the exact same thing. Often they overlap and expand as the book goes on. And that's what we have here. We also have a sea of glass. In the tabernacle courtyard, you had the bronze laver of cleansing. And in the temple courtyard, you had this huge bronze sea that sat on the back of 12 bulls. Uh, Cosmologically, this is the firmament that separates heaven from earth. And it is through these cleansing waters of baptism that man is granted access into heaven. It was how you entered the tabernacle. It's what you had to to wash before you went into the temple. So uh, there are four living creatures also in the midst of the throne. These correspond with the cherubim and the most holy place. And in future chapters, we're going to see the book of the covenant open. We'll see a golden altar of incense. But the one thing that is missing from all of this sanctuary furniture is the table of showbread. Where is the bread? That is missing. Well, that is one of the many sub-themes in this book. Bread represents the people of God. And throughout this book, there will be saints who are harvested and turned into bread through the furnace of martyrdom. Uh, We'll actually see this in Revelation 14. Uh, All of this imagery brings together both the priestly and kingly aspects of Christ's reign. So a temple is not just a place of worship and sacrifice. It is also a courtroom where the king's judgments are executed. Those two uh, formerly distinct offices are united in Jesus Christ. He is both priest and king. Uh, Just think about how many times we have already encountered words like witness and testimony so far. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Christians are called to bear witness even unto death. This is all language of judgment. So Revelation 4 gives us access into the temple and the courtroom that rules over the entire universe. 
And this has deep implications for the potency of what we do every Sunday in worship. Worship is where we can petition the God of heaven to exercise mercy or judgment on our enemies. Prayer is a really big deal. It's where we go and find grace to help in time of need. And when we worship, we are doing so amongst this innumerable cloud of witnesses, these heavenly armies, these four living creatures, these cherubim and angels, what we don't see with our natural eyes every Sunday. Sunday, Revelation reveals to us by faith. So when you go to church this Lord's Day, think about what Revelation tells us is happening in heaven while we worship on earth. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Well, let's get into some of the questions you might have while reading this chapter. All right, question number one. What is the significance of the open door and John's ability to enter through it? Uh, Some early church fathers say that this invitation to enter the open door suggests a change in the world. Uh, It was previously shut to the saints of old, but now in the new covenant we have access to ascend to heaven and be taught the hidden mysteries of the Spirit. Uh, Some even take the voice that's saying, come up here as the voice of Jesus. Uh, In John's gospel, Jesus says that he is the door of the sheep. No one can come to the Father but through him. Uh, Jesus, of course, is not a literal door, but he is the one who gives the saints access to the throne room. And this is something that only takes place after the ascension of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this in prior episodes, but before Christ ascended into heaven, the saints were down in shale. They did not have this kind of access or invitation to come before the throne of God. Uh, The book of Hebrews is an extended explanation of how Christ's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood and how Christ's death and resurrection has now opened this door unto us. So how did that door get opened? Christ opened it and you could read Hebrews to find out how he did that. So John is being invited to enter the Holy of holies, the place that only the high priest could go once a year. But now in Christ, we can go there uh, when we are in the spirit. Or as Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4, the father is seeking true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And the purpose of John's entrance there in the spirit is to be shown things that must take place after this. The second question is, what do the Jasper and Sardis stones represent? Uh, Why are these stones mentioned? Jasper is a multicolored and earthy looking stone. Sardis is a reddish color. Uh, And there are various accounts of what these stones uh, have looked like throughout history. Uh, Oikumenius, he's this early church father. uh, He says, for the Jasper is a green precious stone, something like an emerald and similar to the rust of a shield from which it receives its name. Uh, The Carnelian, Carnelian, is another precious jewel and is fiery, bright, and blood red. Uh, Victorinus, another early church father, says, Jasper has the color of water and Carnelian the color of fire. It was manifested that these two testaments have been placed over the tribunal of God until the consummation of the world. And of these judgments, one has already been accomplished through water, the flood, while the other will be accomplished through fire. So Victorinus says these two stones represent God's judgment of the world, first by flood, signified by Jasper, and then by fire, signified by Sardis. So uh, that's one uh, possible interpretation. Uh, Peter Lightheart and many others see a connection here with the high priest's breastplate. 
Uh, Twelve precious stones are set in four rows of three in the breastplate of Israel's high priest, a stone for each of the tribes of Israel. And you could see Exodus 28 and Exodus 39 for that. Uh, Human beings are made of earth, right? We're made out of the dust. And glorified human beings are precious gems. The stones of the breastplate are listed in birth order according to their names. The first stone is a sardis, a redstone, and the last is jasper. Thus, the jasper and sardis is first and last, beginning and end, alpha and omega, not only of the alphabet of but of Israel. Uh, Lightheart then goes on to argue how Sardis and Jasper are Judah and Benjamin, corresponds to those two royal tribes. Um, and if that is the case, then Sardis and Jasper would be kind of emphasizing the royalty of this one who sits upon the throne in Revelation. My view is that since these two stones of Jasper and Sardis are used to describe the appearance of him who sits upon the throne, I do take them as signifying that this is uh, the high priest and high king from the tribes of Israel. He is the man from heaven. He is made dust, but now glorified by fire. He walks amongst the fiery stones and there is an emerald green rainbow around his throne. Uh, Why is this rainbow different from what we see on earth? Well, uh, perhaps because what we see down here is refracted through the sea of glass, which is like a crystal prism. So maybe there's something to what Victorinus says, but I agree with Lightheart here that uh, the high priest's breastplate is probably the primary uh, Old Testament reference that we're meant to uh, think of. Third question is, what is the significance of the four living creatures? So there's one like a lion, one like a calf or ox, and then one like a man and one like an eagle. Uh, This is a fun one. So church fathers like Irenaeus saw a connection between these four creatures and the four gospels. There's a long tradition of associating a specific animal or creature with each gospel. Uh, Other commentators see these creatures as representing the kings of, of different kinds of animals. So the lion would be the king of wild animals. The ox would be the king of domestic animals. The eagle would be kind of the king of birds. And then man would be the king of all. That's kind of a rabbinic uh, interpretation of these four living creatures. Uh, Lightheart makes a further connection to the covenantal stages of Israel's history. The ox or calf is the sacrificial animal that represented the priest. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is this uh, priestly teacher of Torah, giving his sermon on the mount, the law from the mountain. So the ox corresponds with this mosaic or priestly era of Israel's history. Uh, The lion is, of course, a royal animal connected to the kingly tribe of Judah. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is this uh, lion-like warrior always on the move, a true Davidic son of God. And this lion corresponds, of course, with the monarchic era in Israel's history. You think of Solomon's throne. He had uh, lions on each side ascending up the steps to his throne. Uh, The eagle flies above the earth and can see from a heavenly vantage point, and he corresponds this to the prophetic era. Uh, In Luke, Jesus is presented as this eagle-like prophet filled with and driven by the Spirit. And then in John's gospel, uh, Jesus is the man, the word made flesh, the human tabernacle, the last Adam and true man. And with Christ, we enter a new phase in human history that is governed by a a literal man on the throne of heaven. Uh, And this stands in contrast to all of the beast-like empires that you see in Daniel's visions. 
My view is I take these four living creatures as heavenly cherubim. So cherubim are warrior guardian angels, and those are distinguished from seraphim, which I take to be uh, messenger angels. And we know from various passages in scripture that angels can actually change their appearance. So they're kind of the original shapeshifters. Uh, they can look like men. Abraham entertained angels. Uh, they can look like animals, as these cherubim do. And Paul says, Satan, who was, I take as a form former cherubim, uh, can transform himself into an angel of light. So angels are these extremely powerful creatures that have this ability uh, to look differently, to change their appearance. And this could account for some of the differences in appearance that you see in Ezekiel's vision uh, when he sees uh, this fiery uh, chariot with these uh, cherubim around it. Um, and these cherubim have six wings and eyes all around. So you see this a similar thing in Isaiah 6. Um, they have the ability also to speak and sing and worship God. So as uh, future chapters continue, you'll notice it's actually these living creatures, these cherubim who are doing some singing here. As to there being four of these creatures with these four different likenesses, I think this uh, signifies, it corresponds to their comprehensive involvement over all creation. So there's four corners of the earth, there's four winds, there's four directions, there's four rivers that flow out of Eden, uh, and the Israelite camp surrounding the tabernacle uh, was also arrayed like the stars in four directions. Uh, so one commentator actually says this, he says, the tabernacle in the wilderness was surrounded and guarded by the 12 tribes, three being on each of the four sides of the tabernacle. The leading tribes of the four groups were Judah on the east with the banner of a lion, Ephraim on the west with the banner of an ox, Reuben on the south with the banner of a man, and Dan on the north with a banner of an eagle. The four living creatures resemble the banners of these four leading tribes. So if you were to go back to numbers and you're wondering, okay, what is all this numbering of the tribes and how are they arranged? Well, uh, he's picking up on that and saying this is uh, part of the Old Testament symbology that Revelation is picking up. And I think this is a likely connection since Israel is always presented as this earthly pattern of God's heavenly armies, the heavenly hosts. Also on a completely different train of thought, and I'm somewhat speculating here, but I wonder if these cherubim communicate with and are responsible for some of the things that we might call uh, or attribute to instinct in animals and in the uh, created order. So when birds fly south or bears hibernate, they are doing so under the governance in obedience to these cherubim. So what we call kind of natural forces are all governed by a personal God, and there are innumerable angelic and heavenly beings who uh, direct and oversee what we often think of as impersonal uh, here on earth. So uh, one of the major themes in this book is that Earthly events like wars, famines, plagues, destruction have angelic or demonic powers behind them. Psalm 78:49 uh, speaks to this truth, referring to uh, the angelic involvement in the Exodus. And so angels are involved in uh, remarkable judgments, but they are also involved in maintaining what we call the kind of natural or order, weather patterns, cold, heat, wind, snow, uh, gravity, light, electromagnetic waves, etc. cetera. Uh, so whereas we would often think of those as uh, impersonal forces or just kind of natural, the natural world, um, I believe there are angels who are involved in governing those things. Our fourth question is, who are the 24 elders? Uh, our early church father, Victorinus, says, uh, the book of the prophets and of the law. 
And he says it's also the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs. Uh, Tyconius, another church father, he says it represents the whole church and its government. Uh, Peter Lightheart says the most persuasive answer is that they are heavenly equivalents of the 24 courses of priests that David establishes as he prepares for the construction of the first temple. And you can read about that in uh, Chronicles. Uh, They worship and later they harp on harps and offer incense. That's in chapter 5. And only priests are allowed to handle the incense and the censers. So uh, singing, music making in the temple, this is all led by Levites. This is all priestly action. Their crowns are consistent with this identification. High priests wear gold crowns on their heads, and the 24 chief priests are uh, Sharim princes. And you can see that in 2 Kings 19 and Jeremiah 19.1. My view is essentially the same as Peter Lightheart's. Uh, in Revelation 5, these same 24 elders say this, You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So they kind of tell us who they are, kings and priests to God. So I take these two, these 24 elders to be uh, former sinners who needed to be redeemed, and they represent the whole church, hence the uh, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation kind of language. So just as the 24 courses of priests served in the temple and represented the whole people, here we have uh, something similar. Our fifth and final question is, what is the sea of glass? In Genesis 1-6, God says, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So I take this sea of glass to be the waters that are above the firmament. And there is a connection here also to the waters of baptism. Under the old covenant, there were various baptisms and washings that cleansed a man. But under the new covenant, baptism now opens up heaven to you. In baptism, we are united to Christ pass through the firmament, pass through this glass sea, and are now granted entrance to the throne room of God, where Christ is. We are baptized in the Spirit and can now go to heaven where the Spirit takes us. Well, that is Revelation 4, and if you have questions, please do send them to me. You can reach me by email at aventura at christkirk.com, or you can also send in questions using the Google form in the show notes. Until next time, keep on reading.